Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Such a delight to be here with you guys uh, as we celebrate baptisms. And we've actually been in a sermon series called Transitions. Can I hear you say Transitions? That's right. And we've been talking about how all of life is really like this sojourn. And last week, uh, Sarah kicked us off, Pastor Sarah kicked us off in this sermon series talking about the transitions that we go through throughout life. And what does it mean for us to be a people of faith in the midst of that? And you know what's so startling about transitions? I was thinking about it. Whether you're new to the city and just arriving, or whether you've been here for a long time, or whether you're on your way out of the city, all of life is full of transitions, isn't it? Especially in this city. Um, You know, I was just thinking over the 22 years that I've lived in New York, the many people that have come and gone, but even in the midst of all those comings and goings, I've thought about all the places that I've lived in the city. I've lived in Forest Hills, Queens, uh, Flushing. I've lived in uh, Elmhurst, um, Roosevelt Island in two different apartments in Roosevelt Island. And then uh, when my brother was in law school, I would crash at his place in the East Village. And then I would also stay in Midtown East with another friend uh, until we finally moved to Midtown. And so there's been all these transitions. Now, some of you, here's what I know. You're probably thinking like, wow, you've only lived in eight places? Uh, because some of you have lived in far more places. or You've been moving this way and that way because life is full of transitions. And if you didn't know that, you can just pick up your iPhone, right? And your iPhone, uh, there's that... Se- Every day, there's this reminder, like, five years ago today, here's a picture that you took, right? And you look at those pictures, you're like, oh, my goodness. So much has changed from those moments. I look at our little daughter, who's now six years old, and those iPhone pictures, I'm constantly looking at them and, like, you know, showing them to my daughter, like, Avery, look at you when you were one, you know? And she's like, up, I'm right here. I'm like, still, look, look at you, what you were like. Because life is full of these transitions, whether you're a parent, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're breaking up, whether you're getting together with someone, whether you're having children or seeing your children grow up or trying to have children and wondering whether you will have children, whether you're seeing your children go off to college or having grandchildren, whatever it might be, life is full of transitions, isn't it? And today we're going to, you know, one of the questions that often in the midst of transitions is what is secure and what is firm in the midst of my life? I know that oftentimes I've asked that question when things feel like they're falling apart around me. What is secure? And today we're actually going to look at this unique look at the Christian God of what do we believe about who God is in the midst of transitions. Now, with that said, we're actually looking at a story of a person named Abram. Check out in in, in Genesis chapter 12 in the book of Beginnings, there's this historical account of this person named Abram who would later be called Abraham. Now, check out what it says. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, I'm going to pause right there because your, your country, your people, your father's household, those were all the things, especially in the ancient world, that were so important to people in the ancient Near East your country, your family. These were the things that were incredibly valuable to you. Now, here's the thing. I know that in today's world, country and household, those things are still important. But in many ways today, especially in the West, this rugged individualism that you chart your own course to leave somewhere to come to another place, that's very common in our world today. But back in that world, that was a no-no. You did not leave your family. You did not leave your country. And yet, here's what Abram does. He makes this incredibly courageous call to obey the voice of the Lord and then to go on this sojourn, which is already a nomadic culture, and Abram is about to go. Now, why? It's because of this promise, this promise that God says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and so on and so forth. Now, if we go to the next slide, look at what happens. Abram went 
because that's what he was doing. He was called to go, and so he goes. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, he's not some young 20-something who's out to tackle the big city. No, he's 75 years old, and God has given this promise, and he still says, okay, I will go. And he goes, and now he's on this sojourn. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said this, to your offspring. Remember, the promise that was given to Abram is, if you go, I will make you a great nation. So there's this promise of offspring. But also there's this promise, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there's two promises for Abram. It's the promise of offspring, and it's the promise of land. Now, here's what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 12. And if you were to read further in Genesis 13 and then in 14, Abram is going from place to place, whether it's Egypt or to Negev. He's going to these different places. And then in Genesis chapter 14, he has has to rescue Lot, his nephew, from peril from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abram, if you can imagine, he's received this miraculous, extraordinary promise from God that if he goes, God's going to bless him and keep him and be with him and make him a great nation. But in the midst of trying to fulfill that great promise, he's really got nothing. He's still childless. He's been in peril. He's wondering what in the world is going on here. Have you ever been like that where you felt like man, that one open door, right? Like, once I get that job, then things, the world will open up. Or once I get into that relationship, the world will open up around me. Or I've tried to be faithful to God, and all of a sudden, life doesn't necessarily get easier. Sometimes it actually gets worse. Have you ever been there before? Anyone? No one. Okay, that's great. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Maybe it's just me. I mean, but isn't that what life is like? Life is full of these transitions where we wonder whether God is in it or not. And so it's with that that we come to this passage in Genesis chapter 15 that Karin read for us. Genesis 15, check out what it says. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, keep in mind, it's been a few years now. Abram is still wondering, when is this promise going to be fulfilled? He's struggling with his own doubts. And look at what God says. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? I mean, Abraham is basically like, uh, I was 75 when I received this promise that you would make us into a great nation, but it's just still me and Sarah. It's been a few years now. I don't know if this is going to pass. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So God's like doubling down. No, listen, you can trust me. Then look what happens. He took him outside. This is what God does. He takes Abram outside and he says, look up at the sky in the desert. He goes, look up at the sky, the cloudless desert sky. And he basically says, count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. <laughs> this is extraordinary. Abram believed the Lord, and he, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So can you imagine this? He's 75 plus. 
He has no discernible kind of sense of what's the future or being a great nation. He's he's maybe even thinking, I'm going to die soon. And he's wondering, and God basically says, no, 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 Abram, look at the stars in the sky. And can you imagine he goes out there and he's like, look at how many you can count. And think about the countless numbers of stars. That's how many people are going to be in your, your offspring, your descendants. I mean, can you imagine just how overwhelming? And yet Abram believes But look at what happens. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And then Abram said, listen, God, you're the greatest hype man ever. Here you are. You're basically pointing to the stars in the sky. But now you're talking about this land. And look at what he says. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He's reached his point where he's just like, hey, God, listen, you're talking a big game, but I'm not really sure if you're really going to follow through. Now look at what happens. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And you might wonder, like, what in the world is going on? (laughs) Abram shares his doubts, and all of a sudden God's like, yeah, yeah, go get me these animals that are each three years old. And you're like, what? What's going on? And look at what Abram does. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, what is going on here? Abram basically just shared some of his doubts before God. And God says, go get these animals. And immediately, Abram does it. Now, here's the thing. For the people in the ancient world, and I know for us, some of this sounds so archaic, but for the people in the ancient world, something was about to go down, and it was basically a covenant ceremony, a covenant Now, a covenant was unique, and a covenant was a promise that was made, but deeper than a promise. In today's world, we think in the world of contracts. So for instance, in contracts like the most powerful thing in the court of law, or whenever there's witnesses, or whenever there's expectations that need to be met, right? You you ask this question, have you written that down, and do you have a signature with it? I mean, isn't that the thing, right? Like if you hire a contractor, there's an expectation you're going to do this amount of work for this amount of cost and that they're going to receive this on that date, and then we have to sign on it. And if I don't sign it, then I'm not kind of obligated to fulfill my duty. In today's world, that's what contracts are made of. That's how expectations are made. In the ancient world, the pathway was actually making a covenant. But here's the thing about a covenant that was so unique. A covenant, the word for covenant or to make a covenant is the word berit in Hebrew. And the word berit actually means to cut a covenant, now, why, why is that significant to cut a covenant? You see, in a covenant, there was the ratifying oath that was spoken by words. But then there was an actual performative, dramatic scene that was reenacted to actually ratify whatever was said. In other words, today, we sign a paper to sign a contract. Back then, a covenant ceremony was done to say, this is what will true, this is the bond of my word, and this is how it's done. The way it was done was these animals would be taken, they would be cut in two, and notice in Jeremiah chapter 34, you see what happens in the covenant. What is this covenant supposed to signify? Why in the world are these animals cut in two? Look at what it says in Jeremiah 34. It says, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. Oh, snap. Basically, this is what a covenant ceremony was. 
And normally a covenant ceremony, there was a king and there was a vassal, a servant. And normally the way that covenant ceremonies were done were the servants or the vassals were the ones that had to actually walk between the pieces of the animals that were cut. And when they walked between the pieces, it was like them signing a signature. But what they were communicating when they walked between the pieces is, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may the same thing that happened to these animals happen to me. And the word for making a covenant was called cutting a covenant. Why? It's because it was literally cutting with blood and guts to signify this is how committed I will be to my covenant. Aren't you glad we have signatures today? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that extraordinary? And so if this is what's done in terms of Cutting a, so when Abram is told, go get a heifer, a ram, and a goat, and cut them in two, what he, he immediately knows what's about to go down. This is a covenant ceremony between the king and a vassal. But notice how different this is and what happens in the story. Check this out. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So he falls asleep when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, some translations say a flash of lightning, appeared and passed between the pieces. And it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, what's going on here? This is what's called a theophany, where God shows himself in this smoking fire pot. And we actually have allusions to God showing himself as a pillar of fire. For instance, in the, in the book of Exodus chapter 13, check this out. By the day, by day, the Lord went ahead of them. This is when Israel is wandering in the, in the wilderness. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. In other words, here's this manifestation of God's presence, which is signified by this fire in the book of Exodus. And it's the same kind of fire that appears, if we go back to the previous slide, it's, it's the same fire that goes through these pieces. Now, here's what's extraordinary. There's actually a couple of points that are extraordinary. First, Abram doesn't go through the pieces. What's going on here? Remember how I told you that there was a king and then there was a vassal or a servant. And normally, it was obligated that the vassal or the servant would have to go through. But Abram doesn't go through. And I said, sometimes, it's only sometimes that a king would go through. And yet here, God himself is the one that goes through the pieces. God himself, the creator of the universe, God himself, the one who is immutable, would say, I don't stay faithful and true to the promises that I've made. May I become mutable. May I become split in two. May I suffer the same consequence that these animals have gone through. 
It's only God himself who goes through the pieces and makes the covenant. Why? You see, different than the other religious systems that are out there, whether in ancient times or in modern times, what God is showing himself to be is showing himself to be a God who would say this, I will be faithful to you even when you are not. I will be reliable for you even when you are not. Though in seasons of transition, you may leave me or distrust me, I will always stay true. And if I don't stay true to what I have promised you, may the same thing be done to me that was done to these animals. May something that's absolutely impossible for me to be split in two, you can take it to the bank that that's how faithful God will be for you. Do you see how extraordinary this is? What a moment for God to communicate to Abram, but to demonstrate to all of us that this is what God is like. You know, some of us, we experience, there's all sorts of things in life that we hang our hat on, things that give us significance, things that we hold on to, things that, especially in times of change, we cling to and think that that will be our security. But isn't it true that that career or that job, all these things are so fleeting? Our age, our beauty, all the things that we hold on to can be so fleeting, even our relationships. I was in a, uh, I was at a marriage retreat last week with my wife, Tina, and we were in this marriage retreat. There was an exercise we did, and uh, the title of the exercise was called, uh, A Great Marriage Will Always Break Your Heart. And it piqued my interest because I'm like, that seems counterintuitive. I mean, I would think that a great marriage, everyone's heart is whole. Um, but it was basically a, an exercise where I would sit, and Tina would have her arms crossed like this, and she was to pretend like she was dead. Um, sorry, you guys didn't see that coming. <laughs> I realized that. <laughs> You're probably like, what? What's going on here? Uh, but he would basically, he'd be, she'd be pretending like she was dead. And I would basically, I, we were given these prompts to say over our spouses. So like, prompts like, like um, I, what I most appreciated about you was the things I'll miss about you most were the things that I'll regret is and so you could imagine, we're doing this exercise, and like she's pretending like she's dead, and I'm like speaking over her, and I'm just crying, like snot-filled, like just like crying and saying these things over her, and, uh, and then we switch places. And then she's now saying these things, and then it's just a puddle of tears, and I'm like pretending like I'm, I'm dead, but I'm like crying and like blowing my nose and stuff, and it's just like, just really awful. Uh, but also really significant. And it was just a significant moment of just like, wow, like it was just a real powerful moment for us to be reaffirming our love for each other and realize like we can be affirming and appreciating each other while we're alive. But what's interesting is that the title, remember the title of this exercise is called A Great Marriage Will Always Break Your Heart. And the way that it was introduced to us was the reason why a great marriage will break your heart is because someone usually dies first. And because someone dies first, it will break your heart. And so we were actually getting ahead of someone dying first and being able to speak these words of life over one another. But one of the things that it revealed to me is like, wow, like even marriage, you know, in the midst of, you know, marriages, I made this vow to Tina, right, till death do us part, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. 
And yet even relationships can be fleeting. Uh, Even a marriage relationship where it's not always and forever. And, And I just thought about like so many things in life that we cling to for permanence, for security. And for me, in my case, it's my marriage. Even those things are fleeting. And what's so extraordinary about the God of the universe is he actually makes this declaration to Abram and he would make this declaration to you and to me and to all of us about who he is. This God would say, I would rather die. I would rather be split in two, which is impossible, than be unfaithful to you. than not show you that I am for you and not against you. That in your moments of deepest darkness, of insecurity, of wandering, of wondering, do you see what kind of God this is? Now, of course, what's so extraordinary about this Christian God is he would send Jesus, his son, to come And look at what Jesus, what happens to Jesus when he hangs on a cross in Mark chapter 15. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus would hang on a cross, encounter the deepest darkness, go through death itself to show you to show me that God is faithful even when we are not. God is reliable even when we are not. God is for us even when it may not seem like it. This is what God is like. So many modern conceptions of faith and religion are about do this, earn your way, be good, and then God will be pleased. And yet from the earliest stories of who God is, God says, I will walk through the pieces, even when you will not, to show you just how faithful and loving I truly am. He would demonstrate this by Jesus dying on a cross. And that's why the earliest Christians like Paul, look at what he says. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If the God of the universe is for you, for me, when I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil when I'm in moments of aloneness or loneliness or dislocation in life, which so many of us go through, we can trust that God is faithful, that he is there. When my relationships are falling apart, when my lease is ending and I'm wondering what's gonna be next, when I'm going through all sorts of disorientation around my finances, there's a God of the universe who says, I will be faithful and you can take it to the bank. I will walk through the pieces. In fact, I will send my son to to die on a cross to show you just how committed and loving I truly am. See, this is the beautiful news of following Jesus. 
over and against the other gods of this world, over and against your career or these relationships that, again, can be so fleeting. There's a God of the universe who says he is for you, and you can cling to him. In moments of disorientation or transition, he is the God who is always there.